0: Hey, this is Steve Campbell from the C3 Church. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. Our prayer for you is that you'll be blessed, equipped and enabled as you listen to this message. God bless you. Welcome. And before I go into this week's message, just want to mention next week when we start a brand new series, which we've entitled The Wellbeing Series. And we're going to look at how to live a life holistically, how to thrive and not just survive. And we're going to look at different areas that make up the human soul, mind, body, all the parts of us that are important. We're going to start with Krishkan Dyer, who is a friend of the house here, and he'll be teaching on God's plan for humanity and the bigger picture and what it means to live in shalom, in wholeness. And then we're going to look at these kind of issues, relational, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, and financial well-being. So make sure you're here every week, get involved wherever you can as we start that series in August. But today, I've entitled my talk this, Never Waste a Crisis. Never Waste a Crisis. You see, I have a bottom-line conviction that gets me through life. It secures me, it gives me hope, it gives me joy, it supports me when I'm confused, and I'm probably confused about more things at this stage in life than ever, but it secures me. It's a conviction that gives me uh, hope. It's what I go to every single day. It's the essence of my relationship with God. It's the very centre of what I do. It gives me security and warmth. It grounds me. Do you want to know what that conviction is? Yes, I hear you cry from all over the globe. It's simply this. This is my bedrock conviction. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Thank you for listening today and joining in. Appreciate you being here. God bless you. I could leave it there, but I'm not going to leave it there. If you want to know more around it, then stay around for the next 20 minutes or so. I want to read to you a passage from the Bible which gives flesh to that conviction, says a little bit more about this bedrock conviction Jesus loves me. It's from Romans chapter 8, verse 35-39, to written by the Apostle Paul. He says this, Who, or other versions say what? But who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Christ or him who loved us. For I am convinced... That neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I want to point out straight at the beginning here, at the start, this passage does not say, Because of the love of God, I will escape. Famine, persecution, peril or sort, or any hardships. Even though these I face these things, it's always true God loves me. And we so often operate on this basis. I've heard this said, and I want to debunk this myth. People talk in this way. they look at life and they say, "Look how well it's going. Everything's going swimmingly. Wonderful. It's a joy. Everything's easy. Jesus must really love me, so I'll worship him. It's true. If everything's going swimmingly, wonderfully, Jesus loves you, and the right response to a God who gives us all good things is to worship him, live a life devoted to him, be grateful to him. But what if life sucks? What if life is made up of peril and storm and pestilence and viruses What if life is not going so well? People often then revert to this. I think God is against me. I think I've done something and he's punishing me. I think God has it in for me. Or maybe some people conclude, I've heard this a lot, there isn't a God. Because how could a God who is a God of love do this to me? or to them, or to my mother, or to my brother, or to my sister, or some people I've heard when I've said to them, hey, how's life? And they say, it's tough. I said, how is your prayer life? How are you talking to God about this? Oh, I've stopped talking to God. Why? Because he did this to my mum, or my brother, or my sister, or name it, whatever the situation. But that's not the way we are to respond. That's not what the Bible teaches, and that's not how Christians down the ages have responded in tough times. Listen to this verse from Lamentations. This is a book about laments. It's a book of sadness. It's about grief and suffering. It's when the children of Israel, the people of Israel, are in captivity. They're humiliated. Stuff isn't going well. But the author, probably Jeremiah, writes this. He says, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. We're not consumed because of the love of God. Or about this one, Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, O Lord, kept a record of our sins, O Lord, who could stand? I just want to bring you to this. I want us to have a reality check. Bad things happen to good people. Bad things happen to good people. Case in point, Jesus Christ Jesus was the most perfect man that's ever lived on this earth. He was unjustly accused. He went to a cruel death. He was betrayed. And yet, God was with him right the way through to the end. God was still with him and loved him. My point is this, what you see is not all there is to see. What you think is the end is almost definitely not the end suffering is horrible and harmful and generally bad for you. But it doesn't mean this. One, it doesn't mean God is the author of it. Or two, it doesn't mean God has stopped loving you. It's not always about getting through things. It's knowing that God in the midst of what we're going through still loved us. He loves us because he is a God of love and because he's made a decision to love us He will never renege on his commitment to us. This is what it says again in Jeremiah. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. The reality is we only love because God first, first took the initiative, loved us. He's a God of the initiative. He's the God of the first move. This last couple of weeks, we've um, engaged as a family, or my wife and I, in a big, big project. We have boarded our loft, or we had someone come and board the loft, and we've tidied everything. We hired a skip, and we threw away a lot of stuff, but I have to say, we kept more stuff than we're ever going to need. We've got photographs galore, and we've got all kinds, now all neatly packaged in plastic boxes in the loft. We found, again, in our searching, some of our old diaries, which we wrote, and some of the letters and some of the cards that we sent to one another. It's clear in our courtship years, as they say, courtship, in our younger years. When we were teenagers, I have to just make this announcement in case you didn't know it. I first loved my wife. I did a lot of running in those early years cards galore you can see them all I've got them all as uh, a witness I wrote poems here's one that I wrote love comes and goes too easy it's short and brief and breezy the others soon forgotten like apples all gone rotten but there's one love I hold on to and that's my love for you Thank you very much. Helen Steiner Rice, eat your heart out. There were other poems that I couldn't read out in public. We found cards saying, well, our relationship is temperamental. 50% temper, 50% mental. We found cards saying this, roses are red, violets are blue. God made me pretty. What happened to you? That was from my wife to me. There was all kinds. I made the first move. Thankfully, she responded. (laughs) God is a God of the first move. He first loved us. When we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God has given us love songs and poems. Read the book of Psalms. Read the Proverbs. Read Genesis to Revelation. It's full of poetry and love songs and demonstration of God's love. Creation itself speaks of God's love for us. It tells us this is for us. This is because I love you. I was out fishing the other night and a a bird swooped across the lake. It was a a barn owl late late into the evening. And I looked at it and it took my breath away from me. I went, wow. And I felt I heard, or I heard God say in my mind, that's for you. And I just said, thank you. What beauty. It's so beautiful. And his greatest gift of all, to show he loves us, his one and only son who died on a cross for us. Listen, if nothing else good happens in our life, God's demonstration once and for all, for eternity, because his blood speaks forever, is that God gave his son, God so loved the world. That's enough to save us. Whatever else we face, he loves us. He loves us. Now, we mustn't minimise, of course, these things that are mentioned here in Romans 8. Suffering and persecution and all that stuff is horrible. It's hurtful. It's harmful. It should be avoided at all costs, if it can be. We shouldn't run out and say, hey, let's find some persecution just to show God loves us. You don't need the persecution to show he loves you. But in the midst of it, if it does come, know he loves you. In fact, what the Apostle Paul did He previously in that chapter there, in chapter 8 of Romans, he told us that whatever we face, we have to remember God is working it for our good. Let me read it to you. You probably know it well if you've been around a while. It says this, We know, and I hope we do, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. I know it's obvious to say, but let's grab hold of that. It says, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Now, it is for a special group of people, those who love him. He'll turn all things for our good. But he says it's with a big purpose. It's not just to our good for our comfort, but it's for our good for his purpose. Did you hear that? It's for our good, for his purpose. When you love God, it's not just so that you may come into that relationship with him, though it includes that. It's indeed so that his plan and purpose for planet Earth can be worked out through you and others who love him, the church of Jesus Christ. We love him, but then we enter into a much bigger purpose than we probably ever imagined. And that purpose stated here is is, is that this earth may be populated with people who are like Jesus, the firstborn. That there may be others who are put on this earth who are like Jesus. After this message, you need never ask yourself again, what is my purpose on earth? Because we've read it to you. We've stated the scriptures. Your purpose on earth is to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. And he will use everything that comes your way, no matter what it is, no matter how hard or what suffering you face, he'll use everything to conform you to his likeness so that this earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, which is people made in his image and likeness who represent him and who look like him. We're to grow up, there's many ways we could say it, to be like Jesus Christ. Become like Jesus In effect, that's what Jesus said when he gave the Great Commission, the last words before he went into heaven that were to make disciples of him, not of us, of him. So as that again, they know what he taught and are like him in every way. So here's a question I've got to ask you as we kind of land this. It's going to be a long landing. If we know God loves us and we know He is working all things for our good. What ought our response be when tough times come our way? You name the tough time. What ought our response be? Now I listened to a a message last week and some of what I want to conclude with today, I got from a message by a guy called Andy Stanley. And he talked about a superpower that we have and how we can all become better people by engaging this superpower and let me do give you a couple of quotes from him he said this the pandemic chose us but we are left with choices and then he adds your superpower empowers you to turn right to sorry to turn wrong to right and bad to good he defines our superpower as this our ability to respond. Simply that. To choose a response rather than to react to circumstances. Another couple of quotes. Reacting sets us up to become a reflection of the things we despise. That's a good one. Reacting causes us to relinquish control to whatever it is. And we don't want to relinquish control. We don't want to fall in on ourselves and say, God doesn't love us, God's not for us. We want to respond. And the way to respond to adverse circumstances is to lean into God and to acknowledge his love and to remain rooted in that knowledge. God loves me. There's so many examples in the Bible of people that went through tough stuff, an awful life. One of the favourites, which Andy Stanley then talks about, and I just want to finish up with, of course, is a man in the Old Testament called Joseph. Our problem is, if you've been around a while, well, well actually, if you've watched Joseph and his, his Technicolor Dream Quotes, here's the problem, we know the ending. Thank you, Andrew Lloyd Webber, great musical. But we know the ending. But if you were to read it in the Bible without knowing the ending, you'd be flabbergasted at the way Joseph responds. Joseph, so pretend you don't know the end. Joseph has an awful time. He's one of the youngest, the second youngest of a family of 12. His brothers don't like him because he's a dreamer and he's his dad's favourite. In fact, he's the favourite son of Jacob's favourite wife. There are two that are born to Jacob's favourite wife and Joseph is one of them. And he's the the father's favourite. We know it, you know, if you read the Bible, this is Genesis 39 or 37 through to 50. We think it's a short period of time. It lasts from Joseph's life from 17 till his death. And most of the things that we read about happen in a 22 to 25 year period. And he has it super tough. tough. His brothers dislike him so much, they throw him into a pit. Then they tell the father he's dead. They decide rather than kill him, which was their original plan, why don't we sell him to this group of travellers that are coming through because we could gain some financial benefit from it. So they sell him. He goes into slavery. And when you get to Genesis 39, read it. I can't read it all to you. It just says this, the Lord was with Joseph. Excuse me. Joseph has just been thrown into a pit, sold into slavery. The Lord is with him. No, no, no. It doesn't fit our mind or concept. If God is with him, things are going to go well. But he's thrown into a pit and he's sold into slavery. But the Lord is with him. So it's going to change, isn't it? And quickly, because God's a God who can do things quickly. It does change. He gets sold again into Potiphar's house. He's a slave, the lowest of the low in that society. But it says the Lord is with him. And if you read Genesis 39, this is what it says. It says, God blesses Potiphar's house. Uh, Excuse me, why Potiphar's house? Why not Joseph? Well, he's blessing Potiphar on behalf of Joseph, but Joseph's still a slave. And then Potiphar's wife, she says to this lowest of the low, because he's a good looking guy, come and sleep with me. Joseph can't win. If he sleeps with her, then he's going to get accused of, of sleeping with the, the, the leader's wife, the man's wife. If he doesn't sleep with her, then he's going to be accused of not doing what the master's wife tells him. He can't win. But this is what he says, I will not disobey God. So you've got a glimpse there straight away. Joseph is responding rather than reacting to the situation. Eventually, he, because he doesn't sleep with uh, Potiphar's wife, He's thrown into prison. Things are getting worse. But God is with him. God is with him. In fact, there's a word that's used in the book of Genesis 39 there, which says God showed kindness to Joseph. And the word is chesed. Covenant, in other places, it's it's translated loving kindness. God loves him. And, and Jacob, uh, Joseph, rather, could have just reacted and said, where's God? There is no God. This is all going wrong. Those dreams were just cheese in the night. But somehow, and we're not told how, he holds on to God and he believes God even in the midst of it. So he's in a prison. Two guys come in who've had a dream, who've been thrown into prison. He's there with them. One is a butler and one is a baker. They both had these dreams. The interpretation Joseph's able to have. The, basically, the interpretation is this. Pharaoh is going to lift the head of one of you and lift you out of this. And the second one is Pharaoh's going to have your head. One's going to lose his head. One's going to regain some ground. And so he says to the one who's going to be freed, to the butler, when you get out of here, remember me. And then there's this awful verse which simply says, if I can find it here in my notes, the, the verse basically says, This is Genesis chapter 40, verse 23. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. He forgot him. Why didn't God send another dream to the cupbearer to remember Joseph? Nothing. This isn't just a a simple one-day, two-day event. This is two years. And then he remembers Joseph. Because what happens is Pharaoh has a dream and he asks for an interpretation and no one can interpret it. I'll speed up because my alarm's gone off and this needs to be the end. Joseph goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, I believe you can interpret dreams. Joseph says to him, no, I can't. Only God can. Excuse me, you're talking to Pharaoh. You've done it before. Pharaoh thinks he's a God and you've just told him there's another God. But somehow Joseph is not reacting He's responding and he interprets the dream and tells Pharaoh what it's about. Seven years of famine and seven years, uh, seven years of plenty, then seven years of famine. And then he tells Pharaoh what to do, collect at certain strategic points, plenty of food in the first seven years. And Joseph then comes into a position of power. He becomes the prime minister at last. But this at last has taken many years. After seven years of plenty, you get into the seven years of famine. And the brothers, the same ones who put him into into the pit and sold him, come before him because they've heard, they don't know he's Joseph. They've heard there's food in Egypt. And they bow before him, a fulfillment of the dream. Joseph is now probably somewhere in, in his 40s, maybe 40 years of age. It all happened back when he was 17. This is the fulfilment. Joseph recognises him, but they don't recognise, recognises them, but they don't recognise him. He now has a beard, that's the way the Bible describes it. If you look behind it, he's not a young boy anymore. He's a mature man. And with a little bit of conniving from Joseph, eventually he gets the brothers all in front of him, including his brother to the same mother, Benjamin, and he reveals who he is. Joseph could have reacted, but he knew God had been working for good, so he responded and showed mercy to his brothers. There's a beautiful verse at the end of chapter 50, verse 20, that says this, But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. I am in the place of God. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. We are no better than our responses. If we know Jesus loves us and all things work together for good, we must respond. What have you been doing that nearly led to your undoing? Stop it. What do you need to do that you should have been doing all along, start it. We don't become better people just by reacting. We have to respond. I, I finished with this story. This happened yesterday. My wife and I are, are getting some supervision, some counselling, and we were talking about our life and our life story. And, and I talked about my dad, and some of you heard me talk about my dad before. He had some very serious um, medical conditions, both physically and serious mental health conditions. And I thought about him as I was telling the story about him. And he didn't always get it right because no parent ever has. But I do remember in the midst of stuff, he always responded in two ways, prayer, and he was committed to his local church. And he used that as his outlet very much for worship. And I thought, I'm glad I saw my dad in tough times, though he, I'll say it again, he was not perfect. And he reacted to some things But he responded to God and never let go of the grip. God loved him, even in the midst of ill health. I don't know what you're going through, but I do know this. Jesus loves you. You can respond to him or you can react to the situation. And maybe your response, like a Joseph will be a blessing for the generations to come. See, if Joseph hadn't responded right, there would have been no lineage of a saviour. This isn't just about Joseph. This is about the generations that will come. My dad's response to God wasn't just about him. It was about those that were looking on. How you respond is not just about you, but what will happen beyond here in the generations to come. Who knows? Your town, your village, your city, your family could be blessed in a way you never imagined by a right response. So here's my encouragement. Know Jesus loves you. Know all things work together for good and respond accordingly. It will make you better and it will change your life. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We pray it's been a blessing to you.